Welcome to AI, Government and the Future, a podcast by Corner Alliance. We explore the intersection of artificial intelligence, government and the future with your host, Alan Pence. We work with government to create results. We ignite your agency's mission by helping you to design and implement high impact and innovative federal programs in AI, broadband, cybersecurity, public safety and more. Being a government ally is at the core of all we do. Introducing your host, Alan Pence. Hey, welcome today. We are joined today by Professor David Danks. He's a professor of data science and philosophy at the University of California, San Diego. So he's enjoying a very nice weather day out there. And he's a member of their faculty department of computer science and engineering. He served on a variety of boards focused on AI, most notably right now, given this podcast, is the National AI Advisory Committee, but also the Special Competitive Studies Project, Partnership to Advance Responsible Technology, and the Center for Advanced Safety of Machine Learning. He received the James S. McDonnell Foundation Scholar Award in 2008 and an Andrew Carnegie Fellowship in 2017. And he's written several books with intriguing titles like Unifying the Mind, Cognitive Representations as Graphical Models. Wow, I don't even understand what that means, but it sounds cool. And Building Theories, Heuristics, and Hypotheses in Science. My gosh. All right, so this guy's a lot smarter than I am, but we welcome David Banks. Welcome, David. Great to have you on the podcast. Thanks. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So, you know, obviously you've been involved in this advisory committee with the federal government. I just kind of like to get a sense, you know, obviously you don't speak for the federal government, you're an advisor to them, but what's your sort of sense of where we are from a federal perspective on AI? What are, what are our concerns? What are we still waiting to find out about? Just kind of give us a state of play. That's a very good question and one that is on a lot of people's minds. I should preface by saying, as you said, I, I don't speak on behalf of the U.S. government. I certainly don't speak on behalf of the full National AI Advisory Committee either. This is me speaking my personal capacity. I think right now when we look at the federal government, one of the things that jumps out is the ways in which different parts of the federal government are exploring the regulatory authorities that they already have in order to look at the uses of AI in particular sectors. So I think that there's been this idea that a lot of people have had that we have to think about regulating AI writ large as a single kind of thing. But in fact, there are a number of people who are starting to advocate for, and I think agencies in the federal government who are looking at the ways in which AI is impacting the things that are already on their radar, as it were. So, for example, the Food and Drug Administration is looking at how to regulate uses of AI in medical devices. They already regulate medical devices, and using AI might change what those devices are capable of, but it doesn't create you know, novel regulatory problems. Or the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission coming out and saying last December that essentially they're going to continue to enforce the law even if somebody's using AI in their hiring practices. You can't say, we used an AI, therefore it's a get-out-of-jail-free card kind of thing. So one of the things that really has happened in the federal government over the last, I would say, 12 months has been this awareness that the engagements with AI are not all or nothing. We can look at particular uses of AI and particular ways that AI is impacting sectors and regulate and govern from there. 
Of course, in the last 12 months, we've also had a rather large change in what we think of as AI, right? The emergence of large language models, other kinds of generative AI systems have really, in that sense, changed the game quite a lot, in large part because these are systems that are many-use, multi-purpose. They are not restricted to just being embedded in a medical device, for example. So one of the things that I think the federal government, like everybody, is really wrestling with right now is how do we move towards an understanding of governance, regulation, interaction with these systems that are capable of so much more than past AI systems have been capable. And I think in that regard, they just mirror the public debate. We kind of don't know how to ensure that these systems are used to benefit people rather than to harm, that they're used to advance society generally rather than increasing inequality. And so the federal government is just like us. Yeah, well, it does seem like our government has at least taken the approach of listening, listening, talking, convening, as opposed to like what you might see in the EU, where they're actually actively passing legislation to impact AI quite a bit. So it does feel like our federal government is at least taking a more cautious approach to not squelch the innovation right off the bat. I think that that's right. I think that there is much more of an awareness that this technology moves very fast. I think one of the challenges the EU is already running into is uh, the AI Act, which is still not fully enacted in the EU, is in a certain sense probably already out of date. It already assumes certain things about the technology that are not necessarily always going to be the case. And so I think in that sense, what you describe as the more cautious approach is also the one that makes it more likely that we are not going to trap ourselves into a regulatory regime that undermines the ability of the technology to provide benefits. I think it's very common and easy to focus on the harms and lose sight of some of the massive benefits that AI systems are able to provide, particularly for, say, small businesses who they can use AI as a kind of force multiplier to be able to achieve things that they would not otherwise be able to do. So I think it is important that we take more nuanced and careful approach and definitely is something that I think marks at least some of the work that's going on in the federal government. Not editorialize about uh, D.C. Right. There's plenty of people doing that. To what extent do you think that the regulatory framework, so what I've seen is this sort of preoccupation with near-term concerns of constituencies of elected officials, so job protection, defending democracy or misinformation, those sorts of things that are kind of fights that we're already having in other areas, but not so much about the existential parts of AI that might, you know, aren't here today, but might manifest. And it's almost as if our regulatory apparatus is pointed at just these very near-term problems that might actually hurt innovation of AI and not really even looking at these long-term issues where they could really need to be involved to make sure that AI doesn't become something completely nefarious. I don't know what your sense, like, you sense that as well, or... I guess I divide it into maybe three different categories, not two. There's the near-term, very real harms, people being denied loans, people being kept in jail when they should be released on parole, disinformation being rapidly spread through social networks facilitated by AI. Then a second class is the ways in which, as you said, there's a lot of focus on those kinds of, in part because they typically do fall within the purview of a particular regulatory agency. A second class, jumping to the other extreme is, as you said, the sort of very long-term existential threats that are 
often alluded to, but are not necessarily clearly explained, which is the idea that AI is essentially going to run amok and be able to control us and harm us or take over our world. And there, I think that there is, as you said, been much less attention paid by many governments. There was an open letter a few months ago that called for more work on this problem. I think one of the challenges is that we actually don't know how realistic this is as a threat. So people might point to something like GPT-4, which is able to generate quite robust plans, but it's not actually able to execute most of those plans. It doesn't have a robotic arm that it can use to change things. And more generally, I think many of the very long-term existential threats that the AI itself is going to harm us are ultimately somewhat vague and nebulous right now. And so it's hard to imagine what a government would do in response to it. Now, I think what's perhaps most interesting, at least from my perspective, is the middle ground, which is the ways in which the AI might enable us humans to pose an existential threat to one another. So it's not about the AI destroying us. It's about us humans doing what uh, humans sometimes have been known to do, which is pose incredible threats to one another, but now facilitated by AI. So to what extent might AI act as an accelerant in the development of a chemical or biological weapon, which could be an existential threat to humanity? To what extent might terrorist groups be able to use AI to amplify their efforts to undermine particular societies or government? These kinds of very large-scale threats by other humans, but amplified by AI or made more common because of AI. There, I think there is actually a lot of attention being paid within governments to these kinds of ways that AI could accelerate threats that they already knew existed, but were not necessarily perceived as imminent. Of course, a lot of those discussions are happening, you know, not necessarily out in the public eye. They're not obviously the things that we can regulate, but I do think that there's a lot of sensitivity to the ways in which AI might change the landscape of threats that we humans pose to one another, both within a country, within a society, but also internationally. So just like it could help a, be a force multiplier for a small business, it could be a force multiplier for a terrorist group or a small state with bad intentions, right? So, so. I was going to say, which is true of so much of AI. It's an old joke about the internet that everything you could say about the internet in a happy voice, you can say in a sad voice. Right? The internet will bring people together. The internet will bring people together, right? Some groups we think maybe shouldn't be able to get together really easily. The exact same thing is true with AI. Everything about AI, it could be amazing, it could be horrific. And it comes down in many cases to the uses we put to it and the humans who are designing and deploying the systems. So in many ways, the ethical and policy burdens fall on us as humans, and we shouldn't offload it into a technical problem. Yeah, and I do think it's a very important distinction AI is a human weapon, just like a nuclear weapon is a human weapon. That That is a very distinct fear from the AI taking over. So I think it's a really good distinction. And then, so from a government perspective, you know, it's very clear national security-wise. And my sense is, the, from the research you do, Department of Defense and our three-letter agencies have been on the forefront of AI quite a long time. And, and our, you know, there was just an announcement yesterday about additional money going for swarm and autonomous technologies to counter China. So, you know, DOD is there, obviously, you know, they can do more, but I kind of see that, how that's going to play out. Then I think on the civil agency side, I guess the question, I don't know if this has come up yet, is like, where are these agencies going to see AI come up for them first? 
And is it going to be something like where the FDA, as you mentioned earlier, what if we can all of a sudden demonstrate all these cures to diseases using AI and we can get hundreds of thousands of them in a year or millions of them? And then the FDA has no ability to process through that because it overwhelms the regulatory apparatus. So I'm just curious, has there been any thought on the civilian side, like where AI will first challenge government and then, then help government deliver services to the citizens? I think there's been a lot of interest in both of those questions. On the first one, the way in which AI is going to impact the operate the sectors or areas that civilian agencies are tasked with regulating and governing. I think there's rapidly growing awareness of all the ways in which the old set of industries and companies that were being regulated are changing rapidly, both whether it's because of internal adoption of AI or because AI is enabling new companies, new innovators to break into the scene. In many ways, what this is really, I think, highlighted for a lot of agencies is actually the lack of technical expertise within the agency for these topics. Now, some are doing pretty well. So the FDA actually does have a very robust technical expertise in AI for things like medical devices and drug discovery evaluation. You know, it's less clear how strong, for example, you said, you know, USDA, well, one of the big funders of robotics research right now is John Deere in the sense of how much can agriculture and agribusiness be roboticized. I think it's not entirely clear that other agencies have all of the same level of technical expertise that's required, in part because when they do get that, there's a oftentimes hiring from industry of the people who have the expertise in government roles, as we've seen example, for decades with things like the Securities Exchange Commission, the SEC staff are often hired by financial services companies. So that's a very real worry. I think the opportunity is exactly as you said, the possibility that AI could be used to help these agencies be more efficient, more effective, increase essentially their throughput because they are going to be tasked with doing a lot more. And so they need to find ways to work smarter, work faster, and AI has the capability to provide a lot of what is needed there. Again, the challenge is to have the right kinds of technical expertise. And so we're starting to see a lot more efforts to bridge, for example, the gaps between government and academia. How do we help find ways to have the very large, often very mission-focused student populations out there, for example, to contribute some of their knowledge, insights, and energy to the efforts of regulatory agencies. Of course, there are lots of barriers to that, but nonetheless, it provides an opportunity that needs to be explored. Certainly, I would assume they're going to be looking at some kind of schedule program, hiring programs where you know, you can change pay scales and accelerate hiring based on skills. And we have that in certain technical agencies already, right, to access medical science and other. But it seems like it's a critical need because the, the shortage of AI talent has obviously made the salaries not commiserate with a lot of government pay scales. And so we're going to have to adjust that. I think that's a pretty critical need. And one example I was just going to say is I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit right there for the government to do. Like we, for instance, just took a help desk articles for one of the government, SAM.gov, where you have to register various things in government. 
and just over a weekend put it into a vector database and using ChatGPT. And we were able to ask it questions that if you search on the web search or Google, you don't get real answers. And you could just go to this chatbot and it would tell you exactly what you needed to know. And it just seems to me like there's so much low-hanging fruit where the government has all this public information. But if you just put it together, right kind of situation, it can greatly increase access. Now, obviously, there are accuracy and other other issues there, but it just seems like there's a lot there. There is. And I think one of the things that is happening has been a series of applied AI challenges done by the federal government. There, uh, I think next week, I believe, is supposed to be announced to the winners of the large language model challenge that was designed by one of the AI centers of excellence in the federal government. Where the idea basically is to put it out to the community and say, with cash prizes, who can do the best, right? Who can come up with an innovation that will improve either the operations or the ability to serve the American people of the federal government? And how do we take technology and put it to work for the benefit of all through a challenge and then evaluate? And obviously, this is not a way for the government to get around procurement rules or anything like that, uh, but it does provide an opportunity to help have some of the talent that might reside outside of the federal government to nonetheless make a positive difference in the operations of it. And I think open innovation is key. We've been involved in a lot of that. And it's a perfect way for the government to kind of use its convening power, some money, and really get some focus in a community that might not have paid that much attention to government issues in a developer community like that. It's a great way to do it. That's going to be a big challenge for the government is the sort of more open relationship with industry, a little more fluid people in agencies, you know, coming from the private sector and going back, you know, quicker hiring. And I think it's going to be a very difficult culture shift in the government. It's going to take several years, uh, but it seems like it's coming no matter what. I think that's definitely right that kind of a change is going to have to occur. I think one of the things that oftentimes, whether academics or folks from industry don't quite realize is the importance in government settings of ensuring that everybody has a seat at the table, of ensuring that there is an open door to the American people, that government doesn't get to say, oh, we'll just go into a back room and figure this out. They quite rightly have to do many things out in the open, out in public. And that's one of the things that we're increasingly, I think, going to be seeing is efforts to help ensure that it isn't just the same three or four companies having a seat at the table, that it isn't just the same two or three think tanks sending people to closed door meetings, I think is really important to ensure that a broad of the American public is able to help shape the ways the U.S. government thinks about and responds to and uses AI system. That's a great point. So let's shift a little bit. One of the things you've worked on quite a bit, obviously, center of your work is AI ethics and how we're going to deal with the regulatory issues. And so one of the concepts you had talked about is risk-based framework for regulation versus a rights-based framework. So you want to explain that and why that's important in this context? I think the distinction here, risk-based versus rights-based, is In a risk-based approach, what you do is you look for what are the risks of harms, but also the risks of benefits. So risk here is a neutral term. It's not presupposing risk only of bad things. And it's in that sense very focused on sort of what are the outcomes, who is benefited, how much are they benefited, 
sometimes associated with a certain kind of technocratic approach, but it doesn't have to be. The real core is to say, who are all the people who might be impacted by this and how would they be impacted? It does lend itself to things like cost-benefit analysis, but can be done in a much more sophisticated way than people might have in mind when they hear that term. On the other hand, we can contrast that with a rights-based approach, which really foregrounds the idea that there are certain rights that ought not be violated. That, you know, a right to free speech, for example, to use once in the U.S. Constitution in the Bill of Rights, that right to free speech simply should not be infringed. So it's not that we're trying to figure out, well, weigh the costs, weigh the benefits. It's that there are certain rights that provide a baseline. And then in a rights-based approach, typically what we're trying to do is say anything that protects rights in appropriate ways is fine. We're not going to try and distinguish between all the things that are sort of on the good side of that line. Whereas in a risk-based approach, we typically are trying to say, you know, is this better or worse, but we're not drawing a bright line. And so that's a really important distinction in the ways that the regulation occurs is whether we're focused on kind of ordering the possibilities from best to worst. Or simply saying, here's the bar. If you can clear the bar, you're okay. In the United States, we've seen sort of both approaches being proposed. Historically, there's been a lot of focus on risk-based regulation in many sectors. We see this in something like the NIST AI risk management framework, which has been getting quite a lot of popularity. You know, the one of the recommendations in the year one report from the National AI Advisory Committee was exactly that the federal government should look for opportunities to use the AI RMF in many of its evaluations of AI systems. So that's a very risk-based approach, understanding the cost of benefits. Within the U.S. government, though, we also have the Blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights, which came out of the Office of Science and Technology Policy. It's not official policy, I want to be clear, of the U.S. government. It is a non-binding document that lays out a way of thinking about what it would be to have a Bill of Rights for AI systems. You know, what are the kinds of rights that we would hold out that simply ought not be violated by an AI system, such as a, you know, a right to an explanation, a right to certain kinds of recourse when something goes wrong? And so even within the U.S. government, we see both of these kinds of approaches being put out, a kind of way of balancing and ranking different possibilities versus a ways of regulating that focus on, here's the bar that you simply have to get above. But once you're above that, we allow things like market forces to dictate who is the better option. Now, I think one of the challenges we have is that they're not diametrically opposed to one another. I mean, you can sort of think about a risk-based approach where you say, okay, here's some rights. These count as harms if you violate the rights, and so we're going to really penalize you if you do that. And you can think about a rights-based approach where some rights are more important than others, and that can get you sort of ranks and ordering. So it isn't impossible to move between the two, but they highlight different sorts of things. So a rights-based approach is going to very much focus on protecting those things that we think are core to who we are as people, as Americans, as citizens, as humans. Whereas a risk-based approach tends to focus much more on who benefits, you know, who wins, who loses kinds of things, as opposed to what are the core things that should hold for all people. I highlight that because I don't think it's that one approach is right and one is wrong. I'm not going to be sitting here and telling you, oh, you know, here's these two options and here's the right one. I think it really depends in many cases on the kinds of use cases we're talking about. And so what this calls for, I think, is a more nuanced approach to regulation that 
acknowledges that there are some contexts in which we should be saying, here are rights that simply should never be violated, but also recognizing that in a lot of cases, those kinds of considerations are not going to be the end of the story. We really do have to think about who are the winners, who are the losers. And the U.S. government and regulatory agencies have been in that business for a long time. I know people say things like, you know, the government should not pick winners and losers. They've already been doing quite a lot. But this is, I think, a place where we're seeing a kind of fault line appear between different communities about which path is more likely to lead to good outcomes. That's interesting. And you could look at things like COVID or how we regulated COVID and, or, or responded to it, right? Where we thought certain people came in with rights arguments saying that, you know, government has a right to do that. So certain people came in with cost-benefit arguments. So it seems like this would be a pretty rife with political conflict, right, going forward. And it's going to become one of the key things we're going to be hearing about. I think that's right. I mean, I think we're already starting to saw some of that around the blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights. Some questions about, okay, why those rights? What do we do when we're in a situation that somebody's rights are going to be violated if we deploy the technology? How do we decide between them? Or do we say we just simply will not even consider that technology? Because there's always chance of something going wrong. I mean, we, we're never in a world where we know with certainty what's going to happen. Part of why we have things like courts is so we can adjudicate, you know, what do we do when something goes wrong? So in that case, you know, I do think we're in a situation that we're going to have to come down on one side or the other. My own personal view is that the ways in which we've historically regulated most things in the United States lends itself towards a risk-based approach. And so on purely pragmatic grounds, it might make sense for us to pursue that. That will inevitably raise tensions with, for example, the EU, who tends to be much more rights-based in their regulation. And we certainly don't want to end up in a world where the regulatory regimes in the United States and the EU, for example, are so completely different that companies are not able to just you know, develop once and deploy everywhere. We're already seeing some of the challenges around that, around data privacy, the challenges that arise when the EU says, no, U.S. practices don't automatically satisfy GDPR, which there have been periods that they've declared that, it raises a lot of uh, problems for industry because they don't know which rules they're supposed to be following or they don't, you know, they have to be very careful about that. So I do think it would be, we need to be talking about and thinking about this two different approaches now and recognizing that there is no perfect answer. Right. Yeah. And the EU case is certainly, and GDPR, I think the, the best example, given where we are, you know, if this EU AI law passes, you know, it's basically cutting off almost all, you know, startup companies in the United States from ever having anything deployed in the EU that have to go to a great extent, seem like to block anything going over, including a huge threat to the open source market, which I think is something that the EU really hasn't considered. But yeah, I think that's going to be a crucial thing. I will be clear. This is, you know, it isn't as though people are unaware of this. There are a lot of efforts underway right now to try and reconcile regulatory efforts around AI and data and privacy between the U.S. and the EU, between the U.S. and the U.K., between, you know, all of these discussions absolutely are happening and people are trying to do better. But it also is the case that I think some of the discussions about how we ought to regulate don't always take into consideration the fact that different organizations, different countries, different governments 
have these different approaches that don't always coincide. And I also think there is a factor, and you don't need to comment if you don't like, that most of the companies in these sectors are American. And the EU really hasn't had a large software-based, cloud-based company, you know, maybe SAP. But most of the others, you look at all the top companies now, they're all American. So I think there is a factor here where it's, you know, their national interests and their companies are really all that affected. I think it's a little short-sighted in that it basically prevents them from building a startup sector that could lead to that. But I do think that that is a factor in different regulatory approaches. It might be. I think I might push back a little on that because I do think that these companies all, while their headquarters might be here in the United States, they all are multinational entities, which have very large offices, very large footprints in many other countries. And I think that there is a desire in many other countries to try to leverage those we call them satellite offices, even though they might have thousands of people working in them, but to leverage that footprint of the big tech companies into their own startup ecosystem. So I do think that there is desire by a lot of other countries to make sure that we are all on the same page, precisely because the companies are going to them and saying, hey, we're trying to be in every country. We're trying to be everywhere. Please help us with this effort. As you were talking sort of about the courts and, you know, these kind of risk-based, rights-based regulatory. What kept going through my mind is not only just a talent problem in the courts and in the government, is how, if, if this, if AI is moving at the speed it's moving with a level of innovation that it's creating, I mean, I get a newsletter every day with 85 new tools that, you know, do this amazing thing or that amazing thing, right? If these companies are iterating so quickly in a regulated space or in a space where we never thought that you think about a medical device and then all of a sudden every other device in the world has this AI in it and the medical device has to like go through a different process, right? So it's cut off from this innovation that's going on and everyone's expecting in the rest of the world or just seems like the level and the pace is going to be something that fund. It's not just about adding thousands of new AI experts, there needs to be some fundamental change. Like the government's going to have to use AI to deal with AI, right? And they're going to have to change that approach. Or I don't know if that's something you've done thinking about or have seen work on. One of the things that I've spent some time thinking about with collaborators is arguing for the idea that AI should fundamentally be, or AI uses in a particular sector, should fundamentally be regulated in a dynamic way that we should not be thinking that AI is going to be regulated or certified in a way where we can say, okay, it's got the stamp of approval, go forth and never again are we going to reconsider it. In particular, the reason that I think that that becomes critical, that we have a dynamic certification process, is precisely because we often don't know how these systems are going to perform when they go out into the real world. There's lots of things that perform well in the lab, but when you deploy them in a self-driving car on city streets, they do some surprising and strange things. Now, some of the people listening might be thinking to themselves, all right, what do you mean by dynamic certification? The idea there is that sort of by analogy with the way that pharmaceuticals drugs are certified, where they're initially certified for particular contexts under particular conditions, under the supervision of a doctor. And then there's a process by which they end up being over-the-counter ibuprofen that you can just get at your local drugstore. 
the same sort of thing we've argued needs to happen with AI systems, that we start out with approving them for use in fairly limited settings and then have structured procedures. And we've tried to spell out what those would look like in, in various papers, but structured procedures by which we can then move to broader and broader uses. So we wouldn't have something like a system just tossed out into the world, say chat GPT, and suddenly there's 100 million people using it, basically doing a giant uncontrolled beta test on behalf of OpenAI to see what's going to happen when you put it out there in the world. Instead, things would be done in a more staged manner, but would enable the kinds of innovation you're talking about. It would enable people to make the case that, yeah, this is just a better way of doing what we've always done. Okay, no need to recertify, no need to change things. But it, it opens pathways for that kind of communication between the companies and the government agencies tasked with governing those sectors. So you are much more confident in our government's ability to do that. I worry that if we look at sector, highly regulated sectors, we'll clearly see like a lot less innovation, education, healthcare, you know, particularly on bringing down costs, right? It is this sort of almost a backdoor way, because at, at some point, this AI just because is our, our software and AI, they're the same thing, right? I mean, AI is a kind of software. And at some point, is there any distinction between the two as they develop? And does this just become like a Trojan horse for the government to regulate the one sector that's actually had a lot of innovation and brought down costs? That's one of the suspicions. I think that's where you're hearing from Mark Andreessen, Reid Hoffman. You know, they're very suspicious of this being like a way to, for the regulatory state to take over the one efficient part of the economy, in their view. I was just going to say, I, th I think they have a vested interest in uh, minimizing the amount of regulation that occurs. I should be clear, I share some of your concerns and skepticism. What I was trying to point to is a path of how it could be done in a way that doesn't stifle innovation. So I get concerned when I hear people make the argument essentially that there is no way to govern without stifling innovation. I just don't think that that's correct. I think there are ways of doing it. Now, whether we can get there in the U.S. government with all the opportunities, but also challenges that are faced by the U.S. government, whether we can get there in terms of statutory authority being provided to agencies to be able to operate in appropriate ways, whether we can get there in terms of public engagement and trust in these kinds of processes, those are all massive open questions that may turn out to, you know, the answer to all of them may be no, in which case the path we've tried to outline is not going to be a way forward. And we may be back where we are in terms of feeling that there is a kind of tension, necessary tension between regulation and innovation. I'm an eternal optimist. Uh, so I hold out hope that we can find ways to move forward in smarter governance rather than falling back on the old ways we've been doing it. But I can completely understand those who are more skeptical of those possibilities. I mean, I guess what I see is, I certainly think it's possible, but I think it's an almost complete overall of the way a government works, which doesn't happen. But we've gone through it before, you know, the government is a lot different in 1945 than it was in 1820. I do think that a lot of those challenges are, that change was forced by technology and the way the world changed. So maybe that's something, but I don't think our current leaders, our current government leaders, with I'm sure notable exceptions, have really even begun thinking about what that level of change would be. 
I mean, I think it's a complete overhaul of, of government. You know, because I mean, the fear is really like, how long would it have taken the government to approve Gmail? You know, that's what I worry about, you know, and like, and you don't want that become sort of the issue. And I do think that there's, there's a level of risk here that is much higher than we had before. So we have to balance those two things. You, you mentioned Gmail and the example I've fond of going to is, you know, if I want to use AI to optimize server loads in a server farm so that it's more efficient and uses electricity or doesn't use as much electricity, I don't think that that is probably the kind of thing that needs to go through a regulator. That seems like just ordinary business operations that we allow companies to do all the time. So one of the challenges I think that we have is distinguishing between those kinds of innovations, which there's no particular regulatory burden that they should face, and something like open sourcing a large language model, which raises all kinds of very different set of concerns and questions that should be asked. I think that we are not very good right now, whether the public, academia, industry, government, I think across the board, we're not very good at distinguishing between AI uses that are ethically and societally essentially kind of innocuous, they're not problematic, and those that require a lot more careful examination. I think we tend to either say all AI is good or all AI is bad, we collectively. And so I think we need to start finding ways to be better and more nuanced in terms of which aspects of AI, which uses of AI actually get the careful and close attention that they deserve. And this sort of goes into a topic I heard you speak about before, which is ethical interoperability around these issues, right? So we don't all come to the table with the same exact set of ethics. And so how is that going to, that's going to be an inherent conflict we have going forward is we're having an ethical conversation and not everyone's going to have the same idea of what that means in their mind. We frequently in philosophy distinguish between value pluralism, which is this idea that you know your values are different than mine. It could be very simple things like Maybe I like dogs, you like cats, or vice versa. People are different. People care about different things. But we distinguish between that and what we call value conflicts, which is where the things that you want and the things that I want actually are going to come into conflict. You can't satisfy both of us simultaneously. And pluralism doesn't automatically lead to conflict. Maybe I like dogs more than cats. Somebody else might like cats more than dogs. Okay, we just get those respective pets. You don't force people to have a pet they don't want. And so we can avoid the conflicts in that case. More generally, though, what we're finding is that a lot of the value pluralism actually does result in conflicts when we're thinking about AI systems. I might want self-driving cars to always obey the law. You might want self-driving cars to always minimize the chance of an accident. Well, those two come into conflict with each other because sometimes, and I'm not advocating anyone break the law, but you know, the just statistically you know, you create a higher risk of accident if you drive exactly the speed limit when everyone around you is driving 20 miles an hour over the speed limit, as often happens on many freeways out here in California, certainly. Never in DC. I'm sure not. Well, it's gridlock there. So uh, you're not able to drive that much faster, I suppose. So the challenge is, okay, if I'm designing a self-driving car, what do I do? I think highlights the importance of companies thinking about the values and principles that they follow when they're designing and developing their system. And that now is going to be important in terms of, you know, I'm building a system that always follows the law. You're building a system that always minimizes the chance of an accident. Now, suppose that there's some other company that's trying to decide which of our cars to buy. 
Well, that company presumably should purchase the one whose values align with theirs. Now, in this case, that might be easy to figure out, right? We might in our advertising how we designed our cars. But it can get a lot more complicated very quickly. So many of the things that companies say they care about in their ethical AI principles, their responsible data science principles, often are things like they care about explainability or transparency. They care about knowing how or why the system does what it does. But the problem now is how do I, as a company, know that your company did the explainability in the right way? That's fundamentally the problem of ethical interoperability. How do I, as somebody who wants to use your technology, so I'm one party, you're a different party, I want to use your technology. I don't care if your technology satisfies your ethical principles, satisfies your responsible AI framework. I care about whether your technology satisfies my ethical AI principles. But those principles might require me to know things about the technology that you don't want to tell me for good business reasons. So the fundamental problem of the challenge of ethical interoperability is when one group wants to use the technology of another group, how do we make sure that they aren't unintentionally or perhaps intentionally, if they were trying to sort of skirt the rules, using a technology that actually violates their own ethical principles? So, you know, this is a kind of way of thinking about it as I'm a company that says we're never going to use abusive labor practices to produce our garments. But then I purchase all of the clothing from a company that uses sweatshop labor. That we all recognize that something's gone very wrong there. If I claim that I don't care, that if I claim that I care about these ethical principles, but then I outsource everything to a company that violates them. This is the technological equivalent. Of how do we make sure that companies or governments for this matter Governments share technology all the time, especially in the defense and security space. How do we make sure that there isn't this kind of outsourcing of ethically problematic behavior? And so what we try to do in that work, that we, the papers that we've written on that, is to outline ways that organizations can communicate and collaborate in ways that both protect their trade secrets and their intellectual property, while also providing the kinds of assurances that are needed for companies to feel that they are living up to their own principles and frameworks. Well, interesting. So it's something like maybe a Nike has a third party inspect factories overseas to make sure that they have these things and, you know, that people can come together and have some third way of validating information about what your practices are without actually giving the other person their IP. Is that sort of the idea? You can certainly do it through third party verification. And there the question then becomes, what is it that the third party is verifying, right? Because they you know, have to be able to, you have to make it very clear, here's what I need you to say they are or are not doing. You can also do it through self-attestation where companies simply attest, perhaps with some sort of contractual obligations if they lie, that they have followed certain practices. You could, as a company, just simply put into the contract, we, we agree, we stipulate that we have done these things that you, the purchaser, care about. And now there's a contractual obligation that if you somehow violated that, I can take you to court through discovery, find these things out, right? So there's, there are different kinds of mechanisms that can be used. A big part of it, though, simply recognizing that this is something that needs to be done. I think in things like the apparel industry, people recognize these kinds of worries. And the more distributed kinds of sectors where companies are used to the idea that they outsource a lot of their efforts, 
people have thought about this. I think in AI, people aren't used to thinking about it as being outsourced. But as we see the growth of these very large AI platforms that are being used by lots of other companies, I think this is something that we're going to have to be addressing head on. Yeah, it's very analogous to cybersecurity, right? So we had SolarWave and, and we had these, you know, the sense that, oh, we have the supply chain stuff that's allowing us to deliver, you know, be online and deliver services. And now we have to pay attention to each part of that supply chain. And that's sort of very similar here. This has been fantastic. I just have to say, wow, we got a big challenge in front of us. I, I think just in the middle of there talking about the idea of what can, you know, how do we regulate without squashing innovation? I just see this being like fundamental battleground going forward. And, and it doesn't sound like there are a lot of easy answers, but I think we have a huge opportunity here, but, but I, we're starting to see emerging the fractures that we'll probably see over the next decade or two. So I want to really appreciate you being here. So happy that someone like you is working with our government to help, help them think through these issues. And um, once again, thanks. And uh, we appreciate you being on. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a, a real pleasure to get to talk to you today. AI, Government and the Future is brought to you by Corner Alliance. To find out more about Corner Alliance and how we work with government to create results, visit our website at corneralliance.com and then make sure to search for AI Government Future in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Corner Alliance, thanks for listening.